Hi, everybody. Whitney Austin of Whitney Strong joins me today. She was impassioned after surviving the September 6, 2018 mass shooting in Cincinnati, Ohio at the Fifth Third Bank. And after that, she co-founded Whitney Strong with her husband, an organization focused on finding common ground to end gun violence through data-driven, responsible gun ownership solutions. So this episode is emotional. So I want to give everyone that heads up if you have children in the car or if this might be triggering for you. I want you to know ahead of time that we are going to be talking about gun violence, the mass shooting, and what Whitney went through. I encourage you to listen. I've been wanting to have someone on the podcast for a long time to talk about gun violence and what we can do about it as a community, as a society. So I hope you will listen. I hope you will keep an open mind. This is definitely something people feel very emotional about and rightly so, but it is such an important conversation. And when I started this podcast, if you go back and listen to my short introduction, it was all about my desire to have really difficult conversations. Whitney is amazing. And I think you are going to be encouraged by this conversation. Please listen. Let us know what you think. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. Thank you for joining us today. I am so excited to have my guest with me. I have with me Whitney Austin of Whitney Strong. Uh, and Whitney, I just want to welcome you to the podcast, first of all. Well, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, you and I just met virtually a few weeks ago when we talked about you coming on the podcast and you were uh, recommended to me by someone I met at the Grant Professionals Association, someone that works with you, Krista Rounceval. Uh, some people come to the podcast because I have my eye on them and I want to talk to them. Some people come to me uh, because they want to be on the podcast. And Krista attended my, uh, my session at uh, GPA and said, oh, I have somebody you need to talk to. And I was so excited because the issue that is close to your heart is something I have been wanting to talk about on the podcast for a long time. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Oh, and you yeah, you, um, I want to uh, just have you start just by introducing yourself. I always tell people, don't tell me your business bio. Uh, tell me how you come to be. And um, I know that's going to lead into the work that you do now. So I'll let you just introduce yourself. Sure. I like to think that I'm very different than the work that I do, although much of my life now is consumed by the work that I do. So I am a Southern gal. I've lived in Kentucky almost all of my life. And when I think about what brings me joy, I love singing. I love dancing, especially musical theater. I love a good podcast. I love traveling. Uh, but most importantly, I love spending time with my family, my two children, and my husband. 
So those are all things I love and I need a little bit more of them in my life because there's a lot of work going on lately. Yeah. Amen, sister. And you and I have a lot in common then because I also love traveling. I also um, love dancing, although I'm not great at it. And I have been in the South my whole life, having grown up in Florida, although some people don't consider Florida the South, it is, uh, and then moved to Georgia. So you and I do have a lot in common. Um, How's your biscuit making? Oh, well, I need to share that I love my parents dearly, but they don't cook. So nobody taught me how to cook. So not good at all. But I know what kind of biscuit I like. I'm very good at eating them. (laughs) All right. Well, you come to my house and I will teach you how to make sourdough biscuits. Okay. All right. That sounds like a fun activity. Awesome. Well, um, then let's move on and talk about maybe the work that you used to do. Because I know we had an interesting conversation about um, kind of what you thought you were going to do and then what you ended up doing. And that'll kind of lead us into talking about Whitney Strong, I think. Yeah. What I used to do is uh, in some ways, very similar to what I do now and in other ways, very different than what I do now. So I was a banker. I um, graduated undergrad with a degree in psychology and thought that I would go down that path only to shadow someone in the field in the last semester of my senior year and realized this isn't at all what I want to do. And um, because I didn't really have a plan at that point, I ended up taking a job at a bank after graduating as a customer service representative, a teller. And I, in that moment, didn't think that that's what I wanted to do either, but really quickly grew to love banking, uh, not only from the perspective of taking care of my customers, but also just how much of an education I was receiving on personal finance. And as sort of a math brain kind of person, just loved it, loved every bit of it and found a career for myself and spent over the course of 16 years, just rising in the ranks at the bank, moving from the financial center retail role into a corporate role and getting the opportunity to do so many cool things from, uh, delivery and project management, communications, and then ultimately landing up in a product role, which is the role that I had with the bank for almost four years um, before my life changed. But it was a wonderful career. I still love banking. You can't take the banker out of me. Um, But my life changed and I needed to head in a different direction. So you want to tell us a little bit about how how your life changed that day and how you let, how you are, you're not doing banking anymore. Right. So uh, it was a normal Thursday after Labor Day in September of 2018. And uh, I, the bank I worked for is headquartered in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I live in Louisville, Kentucky. And so it was not abnormal to be in Cincinnati. In fact, Cincinnati was my second home. I needed to be in Cincinnati regularly for work. So normal day, get in the car, drive up 71 and check into the bank uh, until it wasn't normal. And what I um, found that day was a mass shooting erupting in corporate headquarters. And, you know, there 
obviously a lot of pieces that to that story to share, but one piece I, I like to share is that I wasn't paying attention at all. I had no situational awareness of my surroundings. I walked across Fountain Square, which is a very popular uh, part of downtown Cincinnati, while on a conference call, talking to, of all people, my legal and compliance partners, and was just really focused on the work call. Like I know so many of your listeners are uh, every single day. And I think really missed an opportunity to notice that things weren't right, that that something was um, askew. And so as I walked closer and got to the revolving door to enter the building, I noticed, I did notice one little thing. I noticed that there was some shattered glass in the revolving door, but really just thought, well, that's weird, not weird enough to be concerned. And as soon as I pushed on the revolving door is when it was clear to me, this this is dangerous, something bad is happening because as soon as I pushed is when I was hit with the first barrage of bullets. And they were so forceful that I collapsed in the bottom of that revolving door left with what's happening. I, I don't understand what's happening to me. I felt burning sensation all over my body. I knew nobody was close enough to me to have hurt me. So I immediately thought these must be bullets. This must be what it feels like to be shot. And this must be a mass shooting because what else could this be? I watch the news. I worry about mass violence. That's what this is. I have been shot and this is a mass shooting. And I then very quickly went into, okay, but I I can't die. I can't die in this moment. I have to live. I have little children who need me. I have a husband who needs me. I have to live. So what can I do? And sadly, there wasn't anything to be done. I tried to get up and I was too badly injured to even get my body off the ground. Um, I looked out onto the square and there wasn't a soul to be seen in the same way that there wasn't when I walked into it, but I didn't notice. And then I tried to move my left arm to get back to the phone to call 911. And that was an indication to the shooter that I wasn't dead. And so then the next barrage of bullets came. Uh And that was really the most devastating moment because, you know, I didn't have any way to escape, to survive. I was coughing up blood. I knew he knew that I was still there. And I just thought, well, this is it. You know, this is the end of my life. This isn't, um, no, this isn't solvable. I can't solve this problem. And um, I'm a person of faith and I said a prayer and, you know, just kind of uh, resigned myself to this is, this is the end. And then on a dime, the heroic Cincinnati police officers arrived and I made eye contact with one of them who to this day is a very good friend, Officer Al Staples. And I just started communicating with him. I said, you have to save me. I am a mother and I need to get home to my children. And I didn't know what was happening behind me. I couldn't see the dangerousness of the situation. He'll to this day tell you that I was 
behaving in a very dangerous way. I should have been quiet and still, um, but I didn't know. I couldn't see any of that behind me, and I saw a savior. And um, luckily for me, the other officers were doing everything right uh, as they had prepared to do in these horrific moments, and they were able to um, shoot uh, and kill the shooter. And then they uh, immediately ran up to rescue me and pull me out of the revolving door. And then it really began a series of events where you know, them doing everything they could to make me comfortable until emergency services arrived and then being transported to the hospital, which also one of the many things that went right was right down the street so I could get there quickly. Um, and then doing all of the things to figure out exactly what had happened to me, how badly I was injured as a result of the shooting, and then figuring out what came next. But the most important bottom line in all of this, and I you know, can't say it without smiling, is after all the scans and me actually you know, losing consciousness for a bit and then waking up, I was, um, I, I was there with many nurses, many doctors, and they all said, you're a miracle. You were shot 12 times, oh my God. but none of the bullets hit any major organs or arteries. And I think that your listeners will recognize that a similar situation has happened just this week with DeMar, who plays for the Buffalo Bills, and the horrible incident that happened on Monday night against the Bengals in the NFL. And would you believe that he went to the same hospital and had so many of the same heroes? It makes me emotional. Think about it. <laughs> so many of the heroes that I had. And they and and when he woke up, uh, he's been communicating through um, writing. Um, you know, they said very similar things to him. I think his question was, did you, uh, did we win? Did we and win the said, game? <laughs> yes. And they said, yes, you won. You won the game of life. And that's what they told me, you know, mm -hmm. you're a miracle. So I don't, I don't always get emotional, but today I think because of, you know, what happened to him and just the world recognizing how special UC medical center is, those are the same people that helped save me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll give you a minute. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for sharing. You're welcome. I've shared it a lot, and usually I do okay, but I, I, I do think that it's been an emotional week. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. And, you know, you mentioned um, that you're a person of faith, and certainly so am I. I wonder if you could talk about that maybe a little bit. That certainly wasn't on our question list, but, you know, when you go through a trauma like you've gone through and you're still going through and you, you will always carry that with you kind of, I don't, I don't know if you want to talk about that and you're, it's perfectly fine if you say, nope, I don't really want to talk about my emotional, spiritual recovery. I just want to talk about the work. It's completely up to you. I'll respect wherever you want to go. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um, 
I grew up the daughter of a Baptist minister, believe it or not. Um, and, you know, my faith journey, I'd say, is really different than his. Um, but what is important to me about faith is how it grounds you. And so, you know, in the most difficult moment of my life, it was made better because of faith. And I still have lots of difficult moments, nothing like that. But, you know, it's not easy trying to change um, minds on this subject matter mm -hmm. with some. And so mm -hmm. I rely upon my faith, you know, to to keep going. So um, I think faith is important, not necessarily that people have the same faith as me, um, certainly respect all the uh, many of the religions in the world. Um, but I do think if you if you can get there, faith is important, and I encourage people to have it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and you are you are certainly a miracle, and have been called to a place that you did not expect. Like you said, it was a normal day, and you were involved in the work um, as an executive with the bank and doing the thing, and then. In the blink of an eye, your life changes. So let's talk about Whitney Strong and how, you know, you've made that, you've made that shift. You're using some of the same skills, yes, but tell us what Whitney Strong is, where you work, kind of your focus. Let's move there. Yeah, so Whitney Strong officially started three weeks after the shooting, although we were thinking about it in the hospital, we being my husband and I were thinking about it in the hospital. And honestly, thoughts of it crossed my mind as I was being shot, as I cared about this issue before it hit me. I thought of it mainly through the lens of a parent and being concerned about my children going to school and school shootings and had often said, oh, I'm going to participate with this group, or I'm going to send an email to a lawmaker, but had every excuse in the book. I have a busy career. I have young children. I just really don't have time for that. And as I was being shot, I thought, well, you didn't do anything. What made you think you were immune? You're not immune. And so as I sat there in the hospital, you know, receiving the most amazing news that no one gets, um, it was just really clear to me that that I wanted to do something. And then also, hubby, I want to do something. Are you okay mm -hmm. with doing something? And of course, whatever you want. I love you. Um, and so we had very um, defined ideas around how our organization would function right from the beginning. And those defined ideas were all around inclusivity from the perspective of, we know everybody cares about this issue. We know no one is okay with children being shot in schools. We know nobody is okay with increased rates of suicide by firearm happening to both our youth and adults in this country. And we also know that nobody is okay with homicides happening disproportionately in communities with mainly black and brown people. We know no one is okay with that. 
We know that. We know that now as victims ourselves of all of this and the information and the messages that we're receiving of support. But we knew that before based upon a diverse group of friends and family. And so how do we build an organization that makes all different kinds of people feel safe to participate instead of an organization that is very exclusive? Um, You could say many of the organizations that exist today exist to support one political party or many of the organizations that exist today to support people who don't own guns. We can't be any of that. We want people to feel safe with us because we know everybody cares. And so those were our very defined ideas from the beginning. We didn't know, we didn't know how to run a nonprofit. We didn't know how to make a difference on that. We, we, we really knew nothing about gun violence. You know, what causes it, what solutions can make a difference. But we were very motivated and inspired to do things differently and to bring people together. And so three weeks later, the organization, like I said, officially started. And that's because we had um, finally said yes to all of the requests to do interviews. Um, And also because I had an amazing support system surrounding me, people that were willing to build the website and to set up, you know, all the things necessary for a nonprofit to function. Because believe it or not, I couldn't even, you know, use my hands at that point. I can remember trying to communicate my story that I had written through, you know, voice text um, to people because I couldn't type, I couldn't text. And so um, that's how it started. And it's only grown over time. We're more than four, we're at like four and a half years at this point. And um I'm really proud of what we've been able to build build because we're still abiding by those defined ideas that we had from day one. And we approach gun violence in a holistic way. No, gun violence is not just the result of um, a lack of legislation. It's also not the result of just a lack of personal responsibility. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. And so as an organization, we focus on what can we do to increase personal responsibility and community safety as individuals and organizations, as well as what can we do to um, pursue legislation that's rooted in bipartisan common ground work. And so yeah, we're we're bigger and we're growing and we have a large presence within Kentucky and Ohio and uh, dipped our toe in federal work even this year. So, yeah, I'm proud of what we've been able to build. Well, I know um, that I have uh, read up on your work and uh, I've looked at your website. I've reached, you know, researched some of the the, the talks and the, the places that you've gone. And you talk about using a, a data-driven approach. And I'm a community psychologist and I'm an evaluator. So I love that, um, a data-driven approach, because so many uh, nonprofits that are started um, from a good place, a great a great place, a good heart, don't really take a data-driven approach. So I want to talk a little bit about that. So you focus on education, legislation, and research. And I wondered if you might talk about those three prongs a little bit, maybe kind of examples of maybe each one of those prongs, why those prongs and what, what does that look like? 
Yeah. And to start out with the data point, um, that was ingrained in me as a product manager, as a banker. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that need to be worked on as a product manager in the same way that there are a lot of things that need to be worked on as a, um, you know, a change agent, a director, executive director of a nonprofit. But you can't grab at all the bright, shiny objects. You need to follow the data. And so if the data is showing you that this is the biggest problem, then focus on that. Um, and so we really do that in all of our work. And I can give you a perfect example with education. So education is tied to our Save a Life program. And it is all about what can I do as an individual to make my community safer? And what can my community do to become a safer community? And uh, what we offer through Save a Life is evidence-based trainings to do just that. So uh, suicide prevention training, because the data will tell you the largest number of gun deaths each year is tied to suicide by firearm. Also training around firearm safety. So what does safe handling look like as a gun owner? What does safe storage look like as a gun owner? And why is safe storage really important, not just to ensure that toddlers don't get their hands on guns, but also to protect the people in your home and to visit your home who may be suffering from a mental health crisis, may have suicidal ideation. And then we also do training on um, emergency response. So stop the bleed. One of the reasons I'm alive is because while I was waiting for that ambulance to come, one of the police officers strapped me with a tourniquet on my left arm. And a lot of people don't know that with severe injury trauma, you can bleed out in less than five minutes. Well, I don't know for sure, but I think that ambulance took more than five minutes. And so Stop the Bleed is one of the trainings that we offer to ensure that, you know, if you find yourself in a horrible situation and gun violence has occurred and it is safe for you to help, you can help. You can help stabilize that person until the medical experts arrive. And so with Save a Life, where data comes into play again, is, you know, we know that everybody could benefit from Save a Life, but we, you know, we don't have endless employees and we don't have endless grant dollars to be able to offer it to everyone. So we have decided that we will only offer it in the communities that I like to say are you know, on fire right now. And so we've chosen to prioritize communities in Cincinnati and Louisville that have the highest levels of homicide. Um, but we're currently submitting applications so that we can expand Save a Life into the um, counties that are on fire, if you will, with suicide. And so you better believe I've got all the public data. I know which neighborhoods have the highest levels and those are the ones that we serve. Uh, so that's education and Save a Life. And I I'm entirely convinced that the entire country needs it, and I'm excited for, you know, more donors and more grantors to step up so that we can get in in as many places as possible that need it. Um, uh, next is research, and research is, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts. It's all about data, um, and we are on the side of trying to increase the volume of research on gun violence. A lot of people are unaware but because of the Dickey Amendment that passed out of Congress in 1997, 
um, there was really a significant halt on research of gun violence. Um, there's a lot tied to that, you know, politics, um, the thought that any research would lead to gun control. And, um, you know, in, in the end, it was really detrimental because if there's a problem, a public health problem, it needs to be studied. Otherwise, how can you look at anyone with confidence that your solution is um, conclusive and that it will um, bring about change? And so that doesn't mean that that research didn't exist, but just when the federal government isn't funding it, there's a big deficit. And so I always share the most, the very first significant moment of hope for me was in 2019, December, so more than a year after I had been shot. Congress came together again decades later and said in a very bipartisan way, we're going to study this again and to the tune of $25 million. And so that's amazing. I know kind of, you know, I keep track of many of these research projects and I'm really excited for the results to come in in the next year or so. Um, but it's not enough. And so where Whitney Strong can help, we will, and the research needs to tie to the work. So we have a number of research projects going. Um, one, of course, is to support, to support Save a Life and to continue improve outcomes. Um, and we do that in partnership with the University of Cincinnati and Xavier's Criminology Department. We even have a data scientist now to uh, collect and analyze all of the data we gather in those sessions. Um, but then we do other cool things like we're working on a project with the University of Louisville's um, School of Public Health where we will be able to better educate people on what happens to real estate values when shootings occur? And then what happens to the people that live around those homes that, um, you know, are involved in an incident of gun violence? Because no surprise, former banker, I'm, you know, I'm interested in money and, and the role that money plays in all of this, because I think it's another way to bring people into the work. And then lastly, there's legislation. And I truly believe that there are, I don't, I, don't, I don't just believe it, I know it because there's data to support it, that there are a number of policies that a majority of Americans support. And I don't mean like, oh, well, you got 51% of Republicans and 89% of Democrats. No, we're talking 80% plus in both categories, both major political parties. Um, and as an organization, those are the policies we pursue. Um, there are a lot of policies on this issue that don't get that kind of support, and I feel other organizations are misled for pursuing them, not because I agree or disagree with those policies, but because I think that is what causes us to stall on this issue. Um, so we are very much in the camp of we're not going to pursue legislation unless we have both sides, both major political parties involved. Um, and also that we have the data to support the American people want these policies to move forward. And so we have um, a piece of legislation in Kentucky that we have been championing for several years that we are getting closer and closer to crossing the finish line. Um, and then we also uh, worked very closely with um, a senator um, out of Ohio on a piece of legislation in the last couple of months. Um, so... I, I could keep going. I'm probably talking too much. So I'll take a, I'll take a breath. Uh, well, I just wanted to um, hop in and I, I love um, 
the analogy you made with the shiny object, because when I'm working with uh, my nonprofit and community coalition clients, I use that that analogy all the time. Don't chase the the shiny objects. Try to stay, you know, true to your true to your mission. It's too easy to get like taken off the path. And I love how you use, you know, data and all three of those prongs to stay focused and to help you move the work forward. Cause that's really what it's, what it's all about. So um, I want to dig into this majority supported solutions. Cause that is, you know, when you think um, even the word like uh, bipartisan or right. So that can be kind of a dirty word right now. Um, compromise, collaboration. So how did you settle on focusing on majority supported solutions? And dumb question, like, isn't that hard? <laughs> isn't that hard? I read on your website, you said, or your personal statement, your personal statement rather says, we believe in conversations that unify. So how did you settle on that approach? It's, you know, that question is so interesting to me because I think, like, what are you talking about? Why is that hard to comprehend? You know, I can't, <laughs> even, I can't, I can't even see another world in which it makes sense to fight. Oh, all the time. I agree. I 100% agree. But it feels like that's just not where we are. And maybe, maybe that's not true. Yeah. Well, you have to have a bit of defiant optimism, you know, for your for your uh, view of the world and where you want it to be. And um, I also come by it honestly, you know, this is, Whitney Strong is really the embodiment of who I am as a human. You know, this is authentically me. I truly believe that whatever you're talking about, that there are two sides to the coin and that there are valid sides to both. Um, and that they should be, they should be aired, they should be listened to, and then we can get to a better solution. Um, because everybody's perspective is different. Everybody's experience is different. Look what, you know, the reason that people own guns in um, Eastern Kentucky is entirely different than the reason that people don't own guns in Louisville. And if you're not willing to explore both of those sides, you're never going to make progress in this state and you're probably going to get to a bad solution. Meanwhile, if you really care about understanding why people own guns in Eastern Kentucky and why people don't own them in Louisville, then you can see both sides and you can come to a better solution. And so one part of it is that I truly believe you get to the best solutions when you understand both sides of the coin. Um, but then the other part of it is more strategy. And that I think comes from my business background. You know, I, one of the other things I thought of sitting in the hospital is, goodness, had it been, I think at, a, at that point, it was almost eight years since the Sandy Hook massacre. And for me, that was the moment, you know, that was the moment that I, you know, I have to do something. Although, like I said, I found ways not to do something for quite a while. Um I can't have this. This can't be the America that my children inherit. I wasn't concerned as a kid that I was going to walk into school and get shot. And yep. isn't that part of what being a parent is about is that you're giving your children something better than what you had. Um, and so from that perspective, sitting in the hospital, I just thought, Oh my gosh, 
It's been eight years. And while it wasn't fair then to say, because I'm more educated now, that nothing had changed, certainly change has occurred and continues to occur. If you have your ear to the ground, you can see it. You can you can feel it. Um, but I can't be on the side of stagnation. I have to have progress on this issue. And so knowing that I want to start out, you know, focusing on Kentucky and Ohio, where gun ownership is important. Um, and by the way, we're gun owners, you know, so gun ownership is important. And there are mostly conservative legislatures. How do I find a way to pull these people into the work so that we can see progress? And so that's where mm-hmm. bipartisan also comes into play. If you are living in reality, and I'm very good at living in reality, this is how you make progress. So if you want to, you know, if you want to pick policies that stand no chance, go for it. That that certainly is a strategy that plays a role in change, but that is not the strategy that we are going to put into place. Mm-hmm. So it's both strategy and it's a personal conviction of, mm-hmm. you know, hearing both sides and finding the best solution. Well, you know, that's um, Whitney, that's exactly why I started this uh, podcast. And for those of you who have jumped in and not listened to my like two minute intro, I hope you go back and listen to it because I was so uh, frustrated by the, you know, we go to the corner and we never talk to each other. Um, that's ex- that's it. It boggles my mind that we can't figure out how to move forward together. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you say you believe in this, put your money where your mouth is and start exposing yourself to different viewpoints, because I thought, you know, this is who I am. I believe in all this. Um, But I'll tell you that I have learned so much from two populations. I have learned a lot from going into more the more rural populations of Kentucky and just like, okay, this is what it's like to live here. This is why I have this viewpoint. This is why my life is different. And then going into um, the neighborhoods um, in Cincinnati and Louisville that have an entirely different experience because gun violence is very real to them. You know, it's happening to your neighbors. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a save a life event and people come to me and they're so kind, like, you know, so concerned about me and what I've been through. And then they rattle off all the people that have been shot in their life. Mm-hmm. That is not something that I experienced before being shot myself. I did not. I was not in circles in which anyone ever said someone has been shot. And then I go into these neighborhoods and they all have personal experiences in abundance of gun violence. And so you got to do that. You got to go into those communities. You have to go into rural areas. Otherwise you're in your bubble and you just think like, this is life. Oh no, it is not. It is not. So I really encourage people to put themselves in a position to talk to somebody who's different than them. A hundred percent. I, I completely, you know, agree. And I'd imagine when you do um, put yourself in the situation where you are in um, uncomfortable places or different places, maybe than you normally uh, live and work. And the fact that this is not an easy 
space. Um, we talked this conversation, we started this conversation about we can all agree on this, this, and this. Well, we can all agree that puppies and kittens are really cute, right? But this is not a puppy and kitten kind of issue. So I imagine you do get pushback. I imagine it's a hard place. So can you talk about that? Because I'm curious about how you handle those situations when people do push back in whatever way they do. Uh, because I'm thinking about other nonprofit and community leaders who also experience pushback. I was in a training one time where, and the trainer said, uh, you'll know you're, you're making a difference when people start arguing with you or, you know, do you know, you, you know, pushing back on what you're saying. So I wonder if you can talk about any pushback or maybe I'm making that up and you have had no pushback and it's all goodness and light. Oh, no, no, no. This is not puppies and kittens and rainbows. Um, there is a very small but active population in the United States that is very, very opposed to any conversation. I mean, any legislation, certainly, but in many cases, conversation on this issue because they feel as if it is um it's a slippery slope, and all it does is diminish the power and the importance of the Second Amendment. I will tell you that I have encountered those people, um, but even my philosophy of seeing the other side and trying to ground ourselves in what we have in common doesn't work. So I remind myself that they are a very, very small portion of the population. Again, I know this because I see the data. And that it is not good for me to spend my energy on them. So I would encourage anybody that has a very difficult issue that they focus on to also look at the data, hopefully reassure yourself that it is a small population and it's not worthy of your energy. Outside of that, a majority of the country is on the side of change when it comes to this issue. Now, there are many solutions that have to be considered. And like I said, that's why we're very careful about the solutions that we pursue. And if I have someone who maybe is not entirely on board with a solution, then what I do is first remind myself that everyone is a human and I care about this human, you know, so I need to treat this human with respect and come from a place of kindness. And then secondly, help peel back the onion. Tell me why it is that you're concerned about this specific piece. And then with a cool, calm and collected voice, okay, well, here's why, you know, I see this differently. And we don't always agree on everything, but we find common ground in certain places. And so that is just the starting point for building a relationship and working together over time. And I've certainly seen lots of minds changed. Um, and those are the really special, really special moments. Um, so yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I decide, you know, is, is this person, you know, worth my energy? And if this person is worth my energy, then let's do it. Because those people in the long run are some of your most valuable supporters, uh, because you've really worked through something difficult together. Mm -hmm. So is that um, something that has come by you naturally that, that, that perspective and that stance, or is that something you've had to practice over time? You definitely have to practice it. Um, but I think that naturally um, I'm pretty even kill and naturally 
seek the good in people. So I think it's a combination of things. Mm -hmm. And early on, um, we decided one of our priorities was to make sure that gun shop employees were educated on the warning signs of suicide. Um, And so, first of all, that was hard because even though I'm a gun owner, after experiencing, you know, gun violence, I, there, you know, there, there are triggers, you know, if I hear a shot fired, that gets to me. Um, and so just to go into a gun shop and like, oh yeah, it, it, one's attached mm-hmm. to a range, you know, where shots are being fired. Um, that was a hard thing to do. But then I also learned in a lot of instances, it's a hard thing to do because many of these gun shop owners, um, you know, were hesitant to have a conversation with me and concerned about, you know, what my my goals are and my strategies and all of those things. But it was really great practice to do that over and over in the beginning. To one, you know, although I'm a gun owner, you know, there's a difference between my relationship with guns and a gun shop owner's relationship with guns. And so what's that perspective? Why do you sell guns? What are your customers like? What, you know, what are your, what are your viewpoints on how we can make this issue better? And so that's where I put in the practice early on was, mm-hmm. okay, just go in there, see how it goes, see what you learn. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I learned so much. Um, so many of our, um, board members that participated with um, us learned so much too. Mm-hmm. You've learned a lot about working in a really hard space. You also started um, a nonprofit, which is a whole mess of learning <laughs> yeah. board and fundraising and uh, bylaws. I know because I sit on a board. So what's next for Whitney Strong? Well, What's next for Whitney Strong is, I believe, going deeper on our solutions within Kentucky and Ohio. I know that Save a Life is the right solution. We just need to improve upon it and get it to more people. I don't have any big research projects in the queue because I think we've got the two right ones going right now that will only help us improve upon legislation and uh, save a life. And then um, getting a legislative win in Kentucky or Ohio's on the agenda. Um, I was fortunate to have the most amazing professional experience this past summer with the passage of the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. I did not have on my 2022 whatever, like next five years worth of bingo, that we would see legislative success at the federal level. But there were many factors that got us there, mainly that we had two horrific mass shootings in May with the Buffalo mass shooting and the Uvalde mass shooting. And the country was really ripe for change. You know, we're just not going to continue to sit back and let our innocent children Uh, be slaughtered in our schools. And so spent a lot of time over two weeks in June in D.C. with uh, Senator McConnell and uh, several other senators that were deeply involved in this work. And it was, we pushed it over the finish line. We had 50 Democrats out of the U.S. Senate and 15 Republicans out of the U.S. Senate that came together and said, 
These are the right combination of solutions. We know we have broad support across both political parties. We're going to do it. And not only did they do it, but I witnessed every single one of them cast their vote from the gallery floor, sitting next to where we started, Krista, the grant writer who got me to you, and my family, my precious children. We watched every single vote. And so this belief that I have that we can do better when we come together was a reality. And so it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And it was the worst thing that ever happened for these elected officials that don't want to buy into bipartisan work because I saw it with my own eyes. And if that happens, it can happen in Kentucky and it can happen in Ohio. And so, yeah, I'm expecting legislative success within these two states sooner rather than later. And then once we kind of get all those things running, then I absolutely have big aspirations that Whitney Strong would become a national organization because I truly believe we have something unique. I believe that we listen to gun owners. I believe that we listen to both sides of the political aisle. And then that's just an art that's kind of lost in all of this. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And I, I love the the hope that I see on your face right now because you've got, you know, this big, big smile. So that's just got to feel so good. So what about, what about you? What's next for you? Oh, I mean, I, I am Whitney Strong and I am a mother and I am a wife. So, I mean, what I just told you is what's next. Um, (laughs) If I had some aspirations outside of Whitney Strong, they would just be to, um, you know, maybe to increase my my levels of discipline so that the impact can only grow uh, and also that that discipline would also apply to, um, you know, my role as a mother and a wife, making sure that when I'm not doing work, I'm not doing work. And I'm being a present and active and supportive mother and wife um, because, you know, those humans are just as important as the work of Whitney Strong. And sometimes they get the leftovers. So I got to work on that. Yeah. Yeah. I think we all do. Or many of us do, I guess I should say. Not that we we all do. Well, I got to tell you, um, I feel so blessed and grateful that Krista made the introduction. And I'm so um, grateful to you that you were willing to to share your story and and talk about your experience and, and where you are now. And, and I, I recognize that it's difficult. And I really appreciate you being here today. Well, thank you. This is a good one. We went down a lot of, went a lot of places I don't usually get asked. So that's nice. Thank you. Well, I'd have to ask you because I'm really curious that um, when you look to the future, what community possibilities do you see? Community possibilities. Well, of course, it's tied to gun violence, but I envision communities that are currently plagued by gun violence today where that's not happening. You're not afraid that your kids are um, in the backyard and um, could be hit by a stray bullet. They're just freely playing. Um, I imagine in these communities that as a mother, as a father, that you aren't um you know, losing hope that your young black male can grow up and be something other than a victim of gun violence. And in, you know, the communities that more often are rural and see increased rates of suicide, that 
you know, you don't fear that your um, son could succumb to taking his own life because he has reached the brink and has access to a very lethal firearm. Same thing with our older white males that are disproportionately dying by suicide, our farmers, our veterans that, you know, they have the support that they need so that they don't get to a place that they just easily reach over and access their firearms. So that's what I envision, just an entirely different world because gun violence is preventable. We don't have to live this way. So I can't, I can't wait for it. And I hope it doesn't take my whole life. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I hope it doesn't take that long. I hope we get there. So Whitney, how can people get in touch with you or support Whitney Strong? Thanks for asking. Um, if you are in Kentucky or Ohio and you want to become part of the work because you're physically present, you can sign up to be a volunteer through WhitneyStrong.org. Um, and if you are not in those two states, there's still a role for you with our federal work. Um, and so, yeah, WhitneyStrong.org, and you can find all the things, including making a donation if it so moves you. And then um, on social media, we're even more active. So it's at WhitStrongOrg, and um, we're on all the channels except TikTok. Don't ask me to... <laughs> We're not going to see you dancing on TikTok. I mean, every once in a while, they convince me to do some silly things, but um, we're not active there. Yeah. And sorry, that may offend people that are really into TikTok. Well, you, you me do too. You. Yeah. You do you, but that's not me. Yeah, that that that's not me either. Well, thank you so much again for joining me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Hey, thank you for having me. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. I sure hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, can I ask you a big favor? Would you like this episode and maybe even take a minute to review and maybe even take another minute to share with somebody you know that might benefit from listening? I really would appreciate it. I also wanted to remind everyone that we have revamped our resources page on the website, communityevaluationsolutions.com slash resources. And there you're going to find our new nonprofit evaluation capacity self-assessment and our brand spanking new coalition self-assessment. So if you are a new nonprofit, if you are a coalition, I have a few tools just for you. I hope you will check it out and let me know what you think. Thanks, everybody, and I will see you next time.